0: I don't like your attitude. I... Uh, Damn The defense is wrong. routine guy says,
1: we Tuesday, PFT-PM podcast. Week 11 awards plus answers to your best questions. Michael David Smith, Mike Florio off. We go sometimes there's... Uh, a breaking news development to talk about but none of that today we're going to jump right into it mds and mds is wearing the gift that he got when he visited west virginia for the first time 12 years ago i thought it was a pat white jersey it's not it's a west virginia fran tarkenton jersey with the number 10 on it actually the number that steve slayton wore when he played for the mountaineers back in 2007 the year that the mountaineers were primed to go to the national championship. All they had to do was beat the Pitt Panthers in early December, 28 and a half point favorite. And of course, Pitt came in and won. And that was that. MDS, great to see you wearing your old school West Virginia shirt.
0: Yes, indeed. It was the first time you and I ever met in person. I had already begun writing for PFT, uh, but I worked remotely here in Chicago and you and I had never met in person. My wife and I, Came to West Virginia, visited you and your wife and the rest of the we got to meet your extended family and of course Larry Mazza. And it was a it was quite a quite a nice weekend that included a big West Virginia football game in a year when West Virginia had a great team, as you know, a team that had national title aspirations.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time since then, and it feels like it's gonna be a long time for the West Virginia football program to be anywhere close to where it was. Back in 2007, but I'm happy to see you still have the jersey and it's the nice one, too. It's not the cheap one. It's the nice one with the letters stitched on, baby. We went first class and of course it was cheaper than it would have been because the player's name isn't on the back because they don't get a cut.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. It's a Steve Slayton jersey minus Steve Slayton's name. (laughs) That's coincidence that everyone was buying five and ten jerseys. Pat White and Steve Slayton, but they, they weren't Pat White or Steve Slayton jerseys because they didn't have those names on them.
1: Just five and 10. It's the jersey of whoever wears number 10 in any given year for the West yes. Virginia football program. All right, let's get right into it. We've got players of the week, rookies of the week, coaches of the week, and calls of the week. We each have one. We'll start with players of the week. MBS, who do you have for week 11 of the 2019 season?
0: Well, I'm going with Dak Prescott of the Cowboys who had what I thought was uh, maybe his best game yet. Now, granted, it was against a Lions defense that has really struggled this season, uh, but Dak Prescott was phenomenal in that game in Detroit. And what I thought was very interesting was the Lions' run defense played very well against Ezekiel Elliott, and it really didn't matter. Dak Prescott could do whatever he wanted throwing the ball and – To me, I don't think Dak Prescott is getting enough of the credit for what kind of a year he's having. I think he should be in the MVP discussions. I think he's having an outstanding season. And I think he's showing that he deserves an enormous contract. And when you watch how well that Cowboys offense can play, even on days when Ezekiel Elliott gets held in check, I think you have to start asking... Did the Cowboys devote too much salary cap space to that Ezekiel Elliott contract? And is there going to be enough left over for Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper and uh, anyone else the Cowboys need to sign? Because it's going to be a top-heavy Cowboys offense in terms of the salary cap because they've got an expensive offensive line. And Ezekiel Elliott already, pretty soon they're going to have to pay Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper as well.
1: Yeah, and the thing to remember, there's only one franchise tag that the team can use in any given year. Now, if there isn't a new collective bargaining agreement by the time the new league year begins, every team will have one franchise tag and one transition tag available next year. But the transition tag is meaningless. It's a right to match. It's very easy to come up with a contract that the Cowboys can't or won't match, especially when they have to deal with Dak Prescott. And if they use the exclusive version of the franchise tag, which I believe they will, right now it's going to be $33 million for one year and that's a 20% raise for 2021 a 44% raise for 2022 if he decides to go one year at a time he can really stick it to the Cowboys and he can stick it to the Cowboys if they tag him and he decides to take not the Kirk Cousins approach who showed up for everything each of the two years he was tagged Dak Prescott could take the Le'Veon Bell approach and show up for nothing in 2020 show up right before the start of the season if he wants to show up at training camp if he wants to skip the off season program good luck getting a new head coach up to speed if that's what the cowboys end up doing in the off season if you don't have a starting quarterback there to get the offense implemented in the off season program so There are some business moves that Dak Prescott can make. And folks, let's keep this in mind. We applaud when the billionaires who own the teams make savvy business moves, but we become resentful when the players do. It's time for us all to realize the players have rights to, and if the franchise tag is going to be in place to keep players from moving, we should encourage them, and we should be happy when they do everything in their power to get the most possible leverage out of that franchise tag. But after what we've seen from Dak Prescott, And he is in the MVP discussion, MDS, the Caesars Sportsbook. Odds that were put out yesterday have Dak Prescott at 10-1. to He's right in the thick of it. And look, if they make it to the playoffs and he leads the league in passing and he becomes the latest guy to get past 5,000 yards, and right now he's on pace for 51-54, he's got as good a chance as anyone to end up winning that award. The only problem is they're not going to get a bye. He's going to be competing with a quarterback of a team that gets the one seed or the two seed. And that may be what holds him back.
0: Yeah. And and so much of when we talk about quarterbacks, so much of it comes down to how well their team plays, even if their team has lost some games when they've played very well. But another interesting thing about the Cowboys is they've had a bunch of close losses and a bunch of wins that they've won handily, and you can just look at a couple of, you know, you could switch like one play of that terrible Jets loss, and they would have won, and we would have said, well, they skated by with a closer than it should have been win, but it wouldn't look nearly as bad as actually losing to the Jets, and really, if you go down the line, all four games the Cowboys have lost have been games like that, where they're right in it down to the end of the fourth quarter, and the Cowboys might be looking up At week 17 and saying hey we have no hope at a bye week and if you could flip a couple of plays and a couple of our close losses we would have the bye week and so it's just it it, looking at this Cowboys season I actually think they are a better team than their record indicates and I think Dak Prescott has played better than you typically think of for a quarterback of a team who's not really in contention for a bye week probably so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what the perceptions are surrounding the Cowboys at the end of this year. If they end up winning the division but having an awfully tough path to the Super Bowl, what are the perceptions going to be around Jason Garrett and around how much they should spend to keep both Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper?
1: Yeah, it's a great point because it's kind of a given that Garrett doesn't come back next year if he fails to make the playoffs. But what if they finish the three seed or the four seed, most likely the four seed, and they go one and done? What does that do for Jason Garrett if they get upset at home in the wild card round? And the problem with the Cowboys this year, they win the games they're supposed to win. When they come up against a tough team, they crater, they lose, whether it's a close game or whether it's not a close game. And they have an opportunity to reverse that narrative this weekend when they go to New England to take on the Patriots. My player of the week is a guy who probably wishes his team was in Dallas's division and not in the Patriots division because if the Jets were in the NFC East they may be in contention they're three and one against the four teams of the NFC East and Jamal Adams has really asserted himself in recent weeks as a truly elite defensive player. We laughed a few weeks ago when he suggested that Like Tom Brady or Aaron Donald, his team should not take any calls whatsoever of a team that may be inquiring about a possible trade that you just hang up right away like the Patriots would for Brady and like the Rams would for Donald. And we said, I know I said, Jamal, you're not close to that category yet. And he's been playing ever since that moment like he is. He's got six sacks in the last three games alone. One in the first game after trade talk was put out there, two the second game, and three last week in a win over Washington and I know it was only Washington but I want to give a defensive player credit and I want to give Jamal Adams credit especially because the Jets are using him in a way intended to create maximum havoc putting him at the line of scrimmage letting him use his incredible skills to get to the quarterback to create turnovers and sacks and uh, that touchdown when he snatched the ball out of the hands of Daniel Jones, the Giants quarterback on the fly last week. And it's just fun to watch this guy play. And you can only hope that the Jets are showing the early stages of moving in the right direction, laying the foundation for next year, where you've got Jamal Adams as their best player on defense, Sam Darnold, ideally as their best player on offense, and they get to start zero and zero without mono, without whatever other adversity the Jets have faced and maybe they can can finally begin to put it together. And look, they're not done for 2019. Their, their biggest test of this newfound good fortune comes when they face the Raiders this week. But if they could beat Oakland, then you really do have to take them seriously. Because one thing about the AFC after the Ra- Steelers or not the Steelers after the Ravens and the Patriots at the top, it's wide open and one of these teams that's hovering around 3 and 7 4 and 6 5 and 5 they find the gas pedal they finish 9 and 7 they may be able to get in because there's just a cluster of teams from 3 to 6 that that at times don't seem like they really want to win a playoff berth so interesting to see what the jets can do jamal adams deserves some credit he's my player of the week
0: yeah and you know the safety position can be an easy position to overlook. When, when you're watching a game on TV, sometimes literally you, you can't see the safety because the TV angle doesn't even always show him. But a player Jamal Adams is reminding me of a little bit at the safety position is Bob Sanders of the Colts, who, if you remember, had a pretty short and injury-plagued career. But when he was healthy, you just couldn't help but notice him. I mean, he was just flying to the ball no matter where he was. And Jamal Adams reminds me a little bit of that. And fortunately, so far in his career, Jamal Adams is showing an ability to stay healthy because you just can't miss Jamal Adams. He makes plays all over the field. Obviously, we are not used to seeing a safety sack the quarterback the way Jamal Adams does. But, but he he makes hard hits in coverage. He, he just flies all over the field in a way that you don't often see at the safety position. And it, it's fun to watch a guy like that who makes a real impact one of the he's one of the players in the league, certainly over the last few weeks that you just can't help but notice him when you have the game on
1: and Bob Sanders, I think one of the more overlooked factors in the Super Bowl win that the Colts had in two thousand and six they couldn't stop the run. They went into the playoffs against the Chiefs that year in the wild card round. And I remember thinking the Chiefs would just run the ball right down their throats, control the clock, and keep Peyton Manning off the field. Well, Sanders got healthy just in time. And that was the spark that allowed the Indianapolis Colts to start winning game after game after game and ultimately won the Super Bowl. And I know Jamal Adams has that intensity, that desire to succeed, and he doesn't like losing. And they've had plenty of losing so far during his career in New York. If they're going to turn it around, he's going to be a, big part of that. All right, MDS, time to move on to Rookie of the Week for Week 11. Who do you have?
0: Well, I'm going with a guy we've talked about quite a bit, but I I think he's worth mentioning again, and that's Kyler Murray, the first overall pick, the quarterback of the Cardinals, who had another very impressive game. Now, they lost to the 49ers, but if you look at, and I, I wrote an item on PFT today, if you look at the way the 49ers have shut down opposing quarterbacks And then contrast it with the way they haven't shut down Kyler Murray, it's really noteworthy. I mean, Kyler Murray, two games against the 49ers, both of them has a passer rating over 100. The entire season, no other quarterback has really even come close to a passer rating of 100 against the 49ers. He's averaging about two more yards per pass against the 49ers than the 49ers have given up the rest of the year. He's completed more than 70% of his passes in those two games against the 49ers. All the other quarterbacks to mind less than 50% in the games against the 49ers. San Francisco has a great defense, and Kyler Murray is the one quarterback who has figured out how to play against them, and I really think he's doing something special. You look at how bad the Cardinals offense was last year, and what Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury have come in and done already. They're not going to be a playoff team yet. They need another year of rebuilding, and they're also in a tough division. It's not going to be an easy division to build their way to the top of because it's nothing but good teams in that division. But I believe we're going to see Kyler Murray keep doing special things in the NFL, and I think he's already showing a very unique blend of running, passing, and understanding this new offense that Cliff Kingsbury is bringing into the NFL. Uh, I, I think it's going to be very exciting to see for years to come.
1: And something I tripped over today when talking about Philip Rivers' season to date: his interceptions and his total numbers—15 touchdowns, 14 picks—and I was looking at the touchdown-to-interception ratios for other quarterbacks, and and you can't just say stuff happens with interceptions. There are too many guys who have a great ratio. Russell Wilson, 23 and two. Kirk Cousins 21 and 3, Dak Prescott 21 and 9, Lamar Jackson 19 and 5, Mahomes 19 and 2. And then I got down to Tom Brady and I noticed, and this is fascinating to me because I can't think of two more different quarterbacks, but Tom Brady and Kyler Murray almost have identical passing numbers through 11 weeks of the season. Now, Murray hasn't had his bye, Brady's had his, but they have. 256 completions for Brady, 254 for Murray, 402 attempts for Brady, 393 for Murray, 2752 yards for Brady, 2703 for Murray, each have 14 touchdown passes, each have five interceptions, Brady has a passer rating of 90.1 and Murray has a passer rating of 91.2. It means nothing. It's just fascinating that Tom Brady in his 20th season and Kyler Murray in his first season have virtually identical passing statistics through 11 weeks of the season. And Murray, the thing about Murray that Brady could never do, the explosion when it's time to run to the end zone that put the Cardinals ahead after they had given up the lead to the 49ers. Look, if they can put help around Kyler Murray— the NFC West is going to be murderer's row top to bottom. And you could quickly see the Rams become the fourth-best team in the division. Jared Goff's already the fourth-best quarterback in the division. And the only guy he's close to is Jimmy Garoppolo. I think it's Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, Jimmy Garoppolo, Jared Goff right now. And it could end up being Jared Goff fading very far behind the pack. And he's the guy who's making $33.5 million a year. And I think the Rams are going to regret that deal the same way that they already regret Todd Gurley's deal. This isn't crap on Jared Goff time, but this is praise Kyler Murray time, and I think he's worthy of the praise. It's fun to watch him. It's just a shame he doesn't have the team around him that would allow him to be a guy whose play is relevant in December and maybe into January, but he will be relevant down the stretch because he can play spoiler against some of these potential playoff teams they'll be facing over the final six weeks of the season.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, boy, that that division is going to be very fun to watch for years to come, I think, because I, I think all four teams, you can see where they're going, the trajectory of them, and you can kind of see there's going to be sort of repeated changing of the guards because the Rams were on top. We're already seeing them move in the wrong direction And realistically, it's probably going to get worse. They've already traded away their next two first-round picks. They're not in great salary cap shape in the years ahead. They don't really have an ability to rebuild if things spiral downward. So I think the Rams, they were at the top last year. They're already not at the top. Next year, they may be in last. And I think we're going to see the Cardinals only move up They're in last for now. I don't think they'll stay there very long. I think it's going to be real interesting to see how long Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson keep Seattle near the top of the league. And I think it's going to be real interesting to see what happens with this 49ers defense that is phenomenal and how well Kyle Shanahan can develop Jimmy Garoppolo over the years to come. It's just a really interesting mix of teams. And I think it's going to be a division where for years to come, we see maybe one division winner, two teams competing for wild cards, and then somebody at the bottom who you think, boy, that team should be better than a last place team, but somebody has to finish in last.
1: And consider this as we talk about the Rams, the Cardinals, and the rest of the NFC West. The Cardinals now have two weeks to get ready for their next game. And their next opponent plays on Monday night, hosting the Baltimore Ravens. And that's the Rams. And Kyler Murray and the Cardinals have not played the Rams yet this year. Five games left for the Cardinals. It's Rams and Steelers at home, then a home game against the Cleveland Browns, then at the Seahawks and at the Rams to end the season. The Rams have to deal with the Cardinals twice as they try to advance what currently are not slim, but uphill playoff odds, especially with the Vikings beating the Broncos on Sunday. The Rams are a game and a half out of the sixth spot in the NFC right now. And the Cardinals could really screw things up for the Rams as they play them twice over the final five weeks. And the Rams may get even more reason to regret the deal that they gave to Jared Goff when they see how Kyler Murray plays on the same field in the same game against Goff. All right. My rookie of the week plays for one of the Bay Area teams. They both were favored by double digits this weekend, playing at home at the same time. Max Crosby, not Cleland Farrell, the pass rusher who was taken fourth overall, but the guy who was taken in the fourth round this year by Mike Mayak and John Gruden. Max Crosby with four sacks. He had two and a half all year long. He had four in one day against the Cincinnati Bengals. Got to Ryan Finley four times. Got to give him some credit as Rookie of the Week. And this Raiders team right now, six and four, if they beat the Jets this weekend and move to seven and four, a showdown with the Chiefs looming week 13, both teams seven and four and the Raiders inexplicably in the hunt, not just to get a wild card, but to win that division. And if Max Crosby keeps playing like he did against the Bengals, the Raiders have an even better chance of getting past the Chiefs.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, Max Crosby actually has more sacks than Khalil Mack this season, I don't think too many people were expecting that. But, you know, it, it's so interesting to see the way this Raiders team is being built. Uh, they, they've found a cheap guy, Max Crosby, who's going to cost him less than a million dollars a year on that rookie contract. And they're saying, hey, we believe he can be an elite pass rusher. I, I'm not saying he's going to be Khalil Mack, but I am saying he can be part of the replacement for Khalil Mack at a much more affordable price if they're smart about the way they use all that cap space they saved by not resigning Khalil Mack and they're smart about what they do with the two first round picks they got from the Bears and it appears that the first pick they use Josh Jacobs certainly is having a good rookie season. Uh, You can see how this Raiders team who last year a lot of people mocked as well, the, the the John Gruden has totally screwed everything up. You can actually see how they're looking like a good young team with talented guys. I think Max Crosby is our second rookie of the week from the Raiders because we've mentioned Josh Jacobs before. Uh, this Raiders team is better than we thought they were going to be.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely, and it's fun to watch. And John Gruden in the conversation for Coach of the Year, and Max Crosby. Not quite in the conversation yet for defensive rookie of the year because of a guy named Nick Bosa. All right, time to pivot to coach of the week. MDS, who do you have?
0: Well, I'm going to go with Colts coach Frank Reich, who his team had a big, big win, dominant win over the Jaguars. But what really spurred me to say that is I was looking up something and I, I came across something that I wrote at the end of last season about what a good job Frank Reich had done with the Colts and how you know some coaches need a long time to rebuild. And Frank Reich had come in in year, year one, made an, an immediate improvement. And a lot of the, the feedback from readers was, oh, come on, that was just because he has Andrew Luck. Everybody knows that if you have a franchise quarterback, you can win right away. You're giving Frank Reich too much credit. Well, he doesn't have Andrew Luck anymore. He was put in a really tough spot for a head coach when Andrew Luck retired. And guess what? The Colts are right there again. They're going to be playing the Texans here on Thursday night for first place in their division. And I think you have to give Frank Reich a lot of credit because you can't say it's just Andrew Luck anymore. Whatever else you say about the Colts, quite clearly we have seen he lost his franchise quarterback in a complete shock to everybody. And he said, okay, I'm going with Jacoby Brissett. I'm going to win with Jacoby Brissett, and he's doing it. And I really believe Frank Reich is proving himself to be one of the top head coaches in the NFL. I think he did a very good job last year. This year, the circumstances have changed, and he's showing he can adjust on the fly. Um, It's not exactly the same as what he did as offensive coordinator of the Eagles when Carson Wentz went down and Nick Foles came in. But it's similar. You're losing a franchise quarterback and you're finding a way to win with your backup. Not every coach has proven the ability to do that. Frank Reich has.
1: The one thing that concerns me about the Colts under Frank Reich is they are a little inconsistent and they tend to lose games that they shouldn't, or at a minimum, they tend to play down to the level of the competition. I'd like to see more consistency. I'd like to see them beat the Texans, and then turn around and not screw around with a team like the Broncos or lose to a team like the Dolphins. That's what troubles me about the Colts. There's too much inconsistency. When they got blown off the field by the Raiders back in week four, I was stunned. Now, the Raiders have proven to be a better team than we thought they were, but the Raiders have just been blown off the field by the Vikings the week before. So the Colts are too up and down for my liking. But Frank Reich has done a great job with a bad set of circumstances. Coming in after Josh McDaniels stiffed the Colts and then coming in after Andrew Luck retires on the Colts 15 days before the start of the season. It has gone well. And, and to handle the Jaguars, right, because this was the reunion of Frank Reich and Nick Foles, the two guys who were working together with the Eagles, also with John D. Filippo, who was quarterback's coach in Philadelphia, coordinating the offense that Foles was running. This was set up for Foles and company to come in and beat Reich and the Colts, and the Colts handled the Jaguars pretty easily, and now the Colts are in position where the table is set. They take care of the Texans, who have to be demoralized after what happened Thursday night, and the Colts can be on their way to a division championship. And the team that demoralized the Houston Texans is coached by my coach of the week, John Harbaugh. And this is one of those, there wasn't anything spectacular, there wasn't a great turnaround, it was just a flat-out ass-kicking of a playoff team, of a team that went 12-4 and four last year, of a team that was 6-3, and three, of a team that could have vaulted into a position where it would have a bye, at least, based on 11 weeks of the season, if it had beaten the Ravens. And the Ravens didn't just win a close game. I thought the Ravens would win by 7, maybe. Maybe a late touchdown from Lamar Jackson, or maybe holding off a late touchdown effort by Deshaun Watson. The last thing I expected was 41-7. to seven. And for John Harbaugh, to help this team, and this is really kind of a season-to-date award for John Harbaugh, but they started off a little sluggishly. They barely beat the Cardinals in Week 2. They lost to the Chiefs in Week 3. They lost to the Browns in Week 4 at home. They have found the gas pedal, and they've won six in a row. And it really went to a next level when they beat the Seattle Seahawks in their own building, 30-16, to then the 17-point win, over the Patriots, then the we're not going to have a letdown against an inferior team and kick the crap out of the Bengals, forty-nine to thirteen, and now forty-one to seven. I think their most significant win of the year, other than the Patriots game, because of the the magnitude and just the yeah, this is a playoff team. We don't care. We're going to thump them, and it's going to be exciting to see what happens down the stretch for the Ravens. I think the real question is, can Lamar Jackson stay healthy? Because if he gets injured, I think they're they're essentially done. But for John Harbaugh to put this team in position where they are more balanced than they've ever been, they've always been a defensive team, their defense is good enough, their offense is spectacular, they're a team that's having fun, and John Harbaugh, remember a year ago at this time, we were talking about the possibility of Harbaugh leaving the Ravens, and a team maybe trading for Harbaugh's final year of his contract, he ended up doing an extension, and that sense that maybe he had been there too long and it was time for a fresh start for everyone, that's disappeared. The fresh start has arrived with Harbaugh still there. And I think the Ravens have to be very happy. They work things out in a way to keep him around.
0: Yeah, and uh, similar to what we were saying about Frank Reich, I really think that sometimes when a quarterback is playing really well, we don't give enough credit to the head coach because we say, oh, any coach could win with a quarterback that good. But not every coach would have this level of success with Lamar Jackson because too many of them would say, I have my way of coaching a quarterback, and the new quarterback has to fit into my way. And we've seen with John Harbaugh and Greg Roman, his assistant, his offensive coordinator, they don't do that. They say, we f- we recognize the talents that Lamar Jackson has. We're going to shape our offense to fit his talents. We're not going to force him to do what we like to do. We're going to take the talent and shape our offense around it, and and I think that is exactly the right thing to do when you have a quarterback like Lamar Jackson, so I think John Harbaugh does deserve a lot of credit.
1: And that really is the thing that coaches are learning when there is a college football quarterback that you like. You don't just take him and absorb him into your system, your offense. You build your offense around him to do what he did to make you fall in love with them in the first place. It's an easy concept, but so many of these hard-headed coaches have their system, their system, their system, and the best coaches will change their system to suit the talents of the players that they have, which means every year you're going to be making adjustments to your system to the extent that you have players who can do things very well that don't necessarily fit everything you do. And it's so simple. Do what your players like to do. Don't do what they don't like to do, and it's no more important than at the quarterback position. All right, call of the week time, MDS. What stood out to you? And just as a refresher for anyone who may have forgotten or may have tripped over this awards podcast for the first time, it's any decision that was made by anyone. It's not just a play call. It's anything that we could look at and say someone had discretion there and they made a choice and it stood out to us for good, bad, or other reasons. What do you have?
0: Well, it's Matt Patricia, the head coach of the Lions, going for two when the Lions were down by 14 in the fourth quarter, scored a touchdown to make it eight. He decided to go for two rather than kicking the extra point. Immediately on Twitter, people are saying, what's Matt Patricia doing? Uh, I wrote an item on PFT about how the the Detroit media said, well, what was he thinking? It doesn't make any sense. It does make sense. It is the right thing to do. When you're down 14, you score to make it within eight. You should be going for two, which gives you the opportunity to win in regulation. And and the math basically works like this. You got about a 50-50 shot of getting a two-point conversion. If you do and you can score another touchdown, then all you have to do is kick the extra point to win in regulation. If you kick the extra point to go down seven, then you kick the next extra point to tie. Now you've only given yourself a 50-50 shot of winning in overtime. It's all about trying to maximize your chances of winning the game. And by going for two, you give yourself the chance to win in regulation in addition to the chance to win in overtime if you only get one of your two-point conversion attempts. So it's the right thing to do. For many, many years, no coach ever tried it. Matt Patricia was actually the third in the NFL this year to go for two when scoring to make the deficit from 14 to eight. So it is becoming a trend in the NFL that coaches are starting to recognize this. And the other thing I'll say is some people have said, well, but the – They still lost the game, so it must not have been the right call. Look, anytime you're losing by 14 in the fourth quarter, you're probably going to lose the game. But you should be doing what gives you the best chance to win the game and what gives you the best chance to come from behind and win is to go for two.
1: And I like the mindset. I first noticed it last year when the Vikings were leading the Eagles by 14 late in the game, and Doug Peterson, the Eagles coach, went for two, can't remember whether he got it or not. I tend to think that he did get it. And the whole idea is then you get the next touchdown and all you need is the extra point to win it. I understand the math. I like the math. When I play Madden, frankly, and if I'm down 14, which happens more often than not, I consider doing it every time. But here's where I can relate to the overall thought process of a head coach of an NFL team. And let me tell you something. People scoff at Madden. There is nothing like playing Madden to, number one, learn more about the names of all the players in the NFL because you come across a lot of different names that maybe you wouldn't recognize because you can't watch all the games at once on a given Sunday. And there just isn't time to watch every game back afterward because we're constantly creating content at profootballtalk.com. But to put yourself in the shoes of that decision maker in those moments, especially if you're playing online, where there's a much greater degree of competition than when you're trying to beat the computer, as we used to call it. But I think that it is just another data point, and it's an important data point in the broader decision that you have to make. And I think a lot of other factors go into it. I like the idea, but I want to know this. How do I feel about my two-point conversion play that would be dialed up for that opportunity to score two? Because if I do it, I'd like to score the two points. Do I feel good about the play that I would use, my best two-point play against the defense I'm facing? How do I feel about the weather conditions that day? Does that factor into whether or not I think I can convert that short yardage play? Any number of factors goes into how I feel about that play in that moment from the two yard line. And also, how do I feel about my kicker that day? Do I feel that the one pointer is an automatic or do I have a little bit of a doubt that the one pointer isn't going to be as made as easily as it used to be when they snapped the ball from the two. So there's a lot that goes into it. And this is where I love Bill Belichick as a coach. You know, he scoffs at analytics. I think he absorbs every piece of information. He absorbs all of the math. He takes everything into account. And then he makes a decision that bubbles up from his gut based upon everything he's consumed to allow himself to make that decision in that moment, the right thing to do at the right time. Just like, and this is the example, MDS, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before, this was me and Sims, but Super Bowl forty nine, when the analytics would have said, with the clock running late as the Seahawks are moving in for a touchdown, take the timeout, save the time, you're going to need to go down and score because chances are they're going to score a touchdown. Belichick sensed the commotion on the other sideline, and his gut told him, based upon everything he knew, all factors considered, let the clock Keep running. Let the clock keep running. And it set the stage for the Seahawks making a horrible decision, the Patriots jumping on it, and winning the Super Bowl. And so my point is, I think we should embrace the idea that sometimes the math tells us what should be strongly considered, but that doesn't always mean it's what should be done.
0: Yeah, I I would say that every coach always has to consider his own personnel, his own knowledge of how well does my goal line offense match up with the other team's goal line defense? All of those things are considerations. Um, but but I absolutely believe that in the overwhelming majority of cases, what Matt Patricia did is the right thing to do. And, and I think you raised the point about Madden. And I don't know if any coaches or any teams are doing this. But I think some of the best Madden players could be a valuable addition to an NFL team's analytics department. Hire one of these really good Madden players and pick their brains about things they've noticed when doing thousands of computer simulations of games. Because, Mike, I've had interactions with people online. I don't play Madden at all. I don't play any video games. But I've had, you know, just interactions with readers on Twitter or somebody emails me. Some of the smartest people I've come across are, are Madden players. They really do understand the league. The first time I ever discovered it, if you remember that time years ago when Brian Westbrook was about to run for a touchdown and then took a knee at the one-yard line because he knew in that particular moment it was better to keep the clock running than it was to score a touchdown. And a lot of people were like, where in the world did that come from? I heard from a couple of people who were really into Madden who said, yeah, we do that all the time. That's that's part of the strategy of late games in Madden that that you keep the clock running. So uh, I I think Madden players are some of the smartest people out there. If they're not getting uh, hired to to work with NFL teams, they should. I bet someday they will if they haven't already because those Madden players, they've thought about a lot of different things that might not come up in a 16-game season, but have come up when you've played a 1,000 or 10,000 games of Madden. And all it takes is once, one game when something weird comes up that a Madden player is ready for and he helped you prepare for it, it would be well worth his salary if you added him
1: to your analytics department. Hey, and I think the the easiest and most obvious reason to have someone who is an expert in how to play Madden is your clock management consultant. To the extent that the coach can't figure out how to work the clock at the end of a game, I guarantee you somebody who plays Madden knows how to work the clock and knows when you're safe and knows when to call the timeout and knows how to use those circumstances to ensure that you put the other team in a box and get the win or also that you save enough time for yourself. And, you know, I play for an hour a day because it's the only way I can get through my cardio workout on a bike. And it's not the easiest thing to do. You have to get yourself on the bike position the right way, and you're holding the controller. And I probably wouldn't be nearly as bad as I am if I wasn't trying to keep my heart rate at 125 to 130 the whole time I'm doing it. But it really has taught me a lot about those circumstances, especially clock management and the various analytics things. But I go through the same thing, because when I score, and it comes down to that gut feeling. The, the sense I've developed based upon playing that opponent in that moment, how do I feel about my ability to make that two-pointer if I was down 14? And I feel like that's that same ultimate gut feeling that the coach has to make. Because obviously, you'll want to make it. You're not going to do it and just say, oh, what the hell, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. You want to feel confident that you're going to make it. And then when you make it, you put extra heat on the other team. And when the team gets the ball back, they know, holy crap, If we give up a touchdown, we're just a kick away from losing the lead and it changes the dynamics down the stretch. All right, the call of the week for me comes from the 49ers-Cardinals game and it's one of the rare instances when we have been reminded that indeed there's a bar somewhere separating pass interference non-calls that won't be overturned via replay review and pass interference non-calls That will be overturned via replay review. And I'm picking this one because it prompted Richard Sherman, the guy who wasn't called for pass interference in real time, but was called via replay review to claim his involvement in the NFLPA executive committee is why they made that call, which I believe is nonsense. And I believe it's another reason why the NFL and the NFLPA should get their CBA done before March of next year when Sherman potentially runs to be NFLPA president. Because let me tell you, if he takes over the union, you're going to have these crazy conspiracy theories like this one that will reset to square one the CBA negotiations. And I think both sides should be afraid of that because I don't think anything good comes out of someone who thinks that that kind of stuff. Now, look, I'm. I'm one of the first to question the motives of the league in any given instance because we've seen it time and again from Bounty Gate to Deflategate to various other examples over the years, but I think this is a little bit too much. I don't think Al Riveron is making his decisions in the control center at 345 Park Avenue based upon whether or not it's Richard Sherman or someone else. I think what Al Riveron is trying to do is figure out, like the rest of us are, where that line really is because Riveron was told by someone above him in the league office at some point... After late August and before the season began, to take that very literal standard that he was going to apply clear and obvious evidence of significant hindrance of the opponent and move it north. The only problem is we don't quite know where it is. It's somewhere below Rams Saints. We just don't know where. And we saw a clear and obvious instance of defensive pass interference in the Texans Ravens game that wasn't called even though Marlon Humphrey had DeAndre Hopkins grabbed and pulled and twisted around. And then we saw a clear and obvious instance of defensive pass interference that wasn't called in real time that was called via replay review. And it really is a magic eight ball for the coaches. We joke about that from time to time, but it is now for most of the occasions when you shake the magic eight ball, the answer is no. But sometimes the answer is yes. And it's prompting these coaches to consider rolling the dice and taking their shot. And Cliff Kingsbury got lucky. But I don't think it had anything to do with Richard Sherman. But I picked that one because it's a reminder that even though I say you're wasting your time if you're throwing the red flag, sometimes you're not. And we've seen that, that standard hit. a couple. Of, it's random. It feels random. It's few and far between, and I don't think anyone knows exactly what it's going to take to get Al River on to drop a flag for defensive pass interference remotely. But it's something that potentially is going to be a significant factor in the postseason. And what I'm curious about, will he retreat to a more literal application in the postseason? Because in the postseason, all these calls are big. And will he apply it the way that he was suggesting before the season he would apply it? And, and, you know, it's funny, MDS, because last night— Mike Williams on that 50-yard pass that he caught where they screwed up and and should have had the clock keep running as the Chargers were trying to tie the game. He pushed off before the ball came in, and Tyron Matthew pointed that out on Twitter. And it was a Mike Williams push-off that first alarmed people at NFL media when Al Riveron was meeting with those folks in June – And there was a defensive pass interference call from week 15 last year, Chargers Chiefs. And he said, hey, if this would have been reviewed, it would have been offsetting fouls because Mike Williams had a little push off in the end zone. And that made me think, holy crap, what are we getting ourselves into? And I think all that concern about, holy crap, what are we getting ourselves into, is what pushed that bar north. And now it's, holy crap, where is the line? What is the line? Nobody seems to know. They better figure it out before January rolls around.
0: Yeah, and you know, I've been extremely critical of the officiating and of the implementation of replay on pass interference, but I will say, I I don't believe Richard Sherman is correct at all when he says he's being singled out because of his involvement in the NFLPA. I, I think there is bad officiating in the NFL. I don't think there is biased officiating in the NFL. I don't think they single out certain players to get more penalties or protect certain players over other players. Certainly, they protect quarterbacks generally, but I don't think the officials are looking at this particular quarterback I need to protect more than I would protect any other player. I don't think it's about bias. I just think it's it's bad officiating. They're missing calls, and they're not correcting them in instant replay most of the time. That one they missed at the time, and they did correct it in instant replay, Uh, It was unfortunate for Richard Sherman, but he did commit pass interference and they were right to flag him for it.
1: Yeah. And and look, I just I anytime anybody thinks that there's some sort of a conspiracy theory, some sort of an idea that the fix is in whatever the case may be. I I think it's so hard just to to get it right in the first place. I think it's impossible to rig it. And, And for Al Riveron. Whose job very well may be riding on his ability to strike this balance. And, you know, he he hey, at some point I think somebody's gonna wake up and say, let's just offer Dean Blandino two million dollars a year to come back and take this over. And I don't rule that out because we've seen we saw it two years ago with the catch-no catch, how badly it was botched by Al Riveron. And this year, I don't really blame him because he look, he let everyone know this is how it's gonna be. And for weeks everyone's like, yeah, that's how it's gonna be. And then all of a sudden, somebody said, no, that's not how it's going to be. And I don't think he knows where the line is. So if I were him, I'd be afraid of my own shadow. And my goal is just, I got to get this right. And I think far more often than not, he's saying, man, that really is interference. But I better not call it interference or I'm going to get in trouble. And every once in a while, I think that his conscience takes over and just tells him, you have to drop this flag. And I truly don't believe whether or not Richard Sherman is a member of the NFLPA Executive Committee matters. And, And here's the other reason why. The two sides are getting along. They understand the value of doing their deal and then turning around and getting new TV contracts in place before a recession at a time when the ratings are still high and there's billions to be made. And there hasn't been that sense of of acrimony and belligerence between the two sides, like we've seen in past negotiations. So, you know, maybe eight years ago, someone would hold it against him. If there was a lot of fire and brimstone happening between the two sides, there's no fire and brimstone. They're working cooperatively. They're making progress. And I think by March, there's a chance they get a deal done. So there's no reason to hold a grudge against Richard Sherman in that regard. All right, let's do this. We've got uh, a few more minutes. The best questions of the day. I got to find the tweet here and uh, see what we have for here. We go. Kristen Coleman has put some together for us. All right. Let's ask uh or let's pose a question asked by at the senatorial, do you believe the Vikings can sustain their success and make a deep playoff run MDS?
0: Yes, I believe they can. Uh I, I think that they have enough playmakers on offense with Dalvin Cooks, Stefan Diggs, Adam Thielen that if Kirk Cousins keeps playing well, they should be able to put a lot of points on the board, and I think their defense can play well in January as well. So they certainly can, uh, but the, the key to me is it's going to be a whole lot easier if they're doing it at home than on the road, and right now I would favor the Packers to win the division and the Vikings to get in as a wild card. That makes it pretty tough, the way the NFL Playoffs are structured. It is just so hard to win three straight games on the road in January. So I think the Vikings need to sustain their success well enough to first win the division. Then after that, we'll talk about whether they make a playoff run, because I think as division winners, they can. As a wild card team, probably not.
1: There's some critical games coming up that don't involve the Vikings that could open the door for them to have a shot to win the division. Packers 49ers Sunday night on NBC. If the 49ers beat the Packers, that puts the Packers at 8-3, the Vikings at 8-3, each with five games left, and they play each other Week 16 on a Monday night. And obviously, you know, the tiebreakers get complicated and they favor the Packers right now, even if the Vikings win Week 16. But ideally, if you finish a game ahead, you don't have to worry about tiebreakers, and that's what the Vikings would be trying to do. The Vikings also have an outside opportunity at stealing one of the buys in the NFC, when you look at the Saints, the Saints and the 49ers play coming up. The 49ers have games at Baltimore and then at New Orleans. And there's a way that these teams at the top maybe cannibalize each other just enough the Vikings can draw the inside straight and get the two seed. They could even steal the one seed. That's the thing. When you look down the stretch, except for the Cowboys, the teams that are in contention, the five teams, the two in the NFC North, the Saints, and the two in the NFC West, two of those teams, are going to have the buys. And any of those five teams could end up with the buys. That's what's fascinating about it. But obviously, between the Packers and the Vikings, only one is eligible. Between the 49ers and the Seahawks, only one is eligible. But the, the Seahawks are right there on the heels of the 49ers. The Vikings are on the heels of the Packers. And the Seahawks and the 49ers play Week 17. The Vikings and the Packers play Week 16. So I think they have a chance, but they have to. Now, when you look at what they did in Dallas... Could they win on the road in the postseason? Why not? When you look at what they almost did in Kansas City, could they win on the road in the postseason? Why not? It just is a heck of a lot harder to do that than it is to win at home when you have the benefit of crowd noise, familiarity, indoors, everything that goes along with it. All right. But, but you know, they are built to win in, December, in in January. Defense and running game. And if you know, the only way you're going to beat them is if you if you have a team that can shut down Dalvin Cook and what we saw on Sunday against the Broncos even when you took Dalvin Cook away Kirk Cousins found a way to make it happen and that was surprising to me and the ultimate test for Kirk Cousins is going to be if they run across a team in the postseason that does take away Dalvin Cook can he get it done with the passing game all right uh, another question here how about a red zone out otherwise known as Tom Marshall who is more likely to miss the playoffs the Rams or the Eagles
0: that's a tough one, but I'm going to say the Rams just because when I look at their path to the playoffs, it's hard for me to see what it is. I mean, the if you look at their division, hard for me to see them finishing better than third. And then if you look at the NFC North, it's hard for me to see them finishing with a better record than either the Packers or the Vikings. And there you go. There's no path to the playoffs if – they're third in their own division and there's one division with at least two teams better than them. So to me, I think the Rams are the more likely to miss the playoffs. The Eagles still have a pretty clear path to the playoffs and that's turn it on and the Cowboys lose somewhere and, and, and the Eagles are in. I mean, the Eagles are still only a game back of the Cowboys. They're far from out of it. It isn't A shock to me if the Eagles end up beating out the Cowboys for the NFC East. Harder for me to see what the path is for the Rams because I believe the 49ers, the Seahawks, the Packers, and the Vikings are all going to be there. And if those four teams are there, the Rams aren't.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely. The Eagles, I think, still will win the division, even though they're currently a game behind. The Cowboys have to play the Patriots this weekend. I think it would help the Eagles tremendously if they could beat the Seahawks at home. Seattle's had two weeks to get ready for this one, but I still think the Eagles have a very good chance at winning the division, which would keep the Cowboys out and maybe end Jason Garrett's time with the team that ends our time today mds thanks as always everybody check us out at profootballtalk.com we'll have pftpm the mega picks podcast later this week with chris sims and more pftpm content more pft live content profootballtalk.com the season is getting into the home stretch and it's going to be fun to see how the dust settles everybody have a great day we'll see you again here real soon